Romans 8, 33 through 39. Notice with me first, if you're following in your insert, we, we move from five links to five unanswerable questions. In verses 29 and 30, we read a, 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 a chain of five links with regard to our, our redemption going all the way to eternity past and taking us all the way into eternity future, that God foreloved us, He predestined us, He called us, He is He has justified us and will glorify us. And now he asks a series of questions. How secure is that relationship? How secure is it? John Stott says that the the apostle hurls these questions out into space. If God's for us, who shall be against us? How will he not give us all things? Verse 32. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn us? Verse 34. And who shall separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord? What's the answer? Nothing. No one. And so in that respect, they're unanswerable. So again, Stott says, there's no answer for nobody and nothing can harm the redeemed people of God. Because ultimately, this world is not our home. So let's ask those questions this morning. You ready? Number one, who can be against us? A bit of a a review, but we say that without apology because in looking at verse 31 and 32, um, you know, is God for me? Who Who can be against us, Paul says? And maybe we'll begin with the first part of verse 31. How do I know that God is for me? And I presented to you last Sunday just a, a series of events. You know, if, if the relationships in your life are disintegrating, is God against you? If you're knowing, you know, a harmonious marriage and wonderful relationship with your kids, does that mean God's for you? If you, if you lose your child or your spouse or your job or your health, does that mean God's against you? And if you're experiencing the sweetnesses that can come in this life by God's good blessing, does that mean he's for you? Well, none of those criteria ultimately carry the day. In Christ Jesus, God is for you. So in all the preaching we offer, in all the teaching from God's word, the big question, the big issue for you is, am I in Christ Jesus? And I'll take you back to verse one, as I have many times. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. He is not against you. He's for you and will always be for you. In fact, there's nothing that can clip that chain of redemption in your life. It will take you into glory itself. Romans 8 establishes that the only true foundation in this life is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He ended the Sermon on the Mount that way. He said... Blessed are those who hear these words of mine and and builds. You'll be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock, opposed to the sand which will blow away. Ray Ortland, in his book on pornography, your true identity is who God says you are. You will never discover who you are by looking inside yourself or listening to what others say. One man recounted the painful words of his father who said to him as a child, you're nothing but the product of a one-night stand. 
You can imagine how crushing that would be. But we don't have to listen to that. What others say about us, what we may even think about ourselves, that's not our true identity as believers. To be in Jesus Christ, that's a game changer. That's a life changer, as it should be. The Lord gets the first word, Ortland continues. The Lord gets the first word because he made you. He gets the daily word because you live before his face 24-7. And he gets the last word because he will administer your comprehensive life review (laughs) at the judgment. The first word, the daily word, and the last word. Find your identity in Jesus Christ. Personal faith in him, trusting in him, he will take you through With every failure, every shortcoming, every disappointment, every single time we fall short, the sweet news of the gospel of God in Jesus Christ is begin again, my child. I'm with you. I am for you. In a Romans 8, 28 type of way, I am for you. I will never leave you. Your sins and transgressions have been dealt with once and for all. So the solid logic of heaven in verse 32 Paul argues from the greater to the lesser. If God did not spare his his only son, what would keep him from meeting any need in your life? Listen to James Boyce offer this illustration. Paul is challenging us to place all the possible enemies that we can think of on one half of an old-fashioned scale as if we were weighing peanuts Then when you have all the peanuts assembled on the scale, throw an anvil on the other side of it and watch the peanuts go everywhere. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can stand against God? And the answer is nobody. Nothing can defeat us if the Almighty of the universe is on our side. That's true victory. Now notice the second question. Who can accuse us? Verse 33 Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. God's elect, who are they? God's chosen ones, believers, those whom he foreknew, those whom he predestined, those whom he justified or called, and those whom he justified and those whom he will glorify. glorify. God's elect. Who will bring a charge? Well, you might say plenty of people. And you would be right. Who could bring a charge? Well, there are a lot of people. Let's start internally with our conscience. Scripture teaches us that our consciences accuse us. We've learned that in Romans in chapter 2. Paul writes in verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, speaking of the Gentiles, that they have consciences that reveal that they have suppressed God's truth given in creation. And he goes on to say that that their consciences also bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And on that day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. We have a conscience. Every human being has a conscience. We can't be saved by our conscience, but our conscience is a warning system. And we're, we're given a red light in Scripture, to nurture your conscience, lest it be seared and hardened and troubled and weak. How are we to nourish our conscience? We're to feed our conscience the Word of God, 
that it may be trained. So Scripture teaches us that our consciences accuse us. We may fool others, but we cannot fool ourselves for very long. We know our private thoughts, our secret moments. We know our sinful desires. We know the roots of anger and bitterness and blasphemous ideas that we keep warm in our hearts. Those and, and, and many, many others. We have a conscience that troubles us and we should be thankful that it troubles us and that it may guide us into the truth. If you listen to pop popular music and movies, the anthem of our culture is, do whatever you want. Rebellion is fun and essentially being true to yourself. After all, you do want to be true to yourself. The great problem with living that way is that guilt and shame and broken promises and an empty life weigh heavy. Charles Colson in his book, Loving God, I'll never forget this quote that he mentioned this book was written in the early 80s 1980s and and it was from psychology today and the article spoke of this young woman whose nerves were shot with too many all-night parties and endless rounds of immorality and drugs and alcohol and when her life began to collapse she told her therapist why her therapist asked her why why don't you just stop it why why, why don't you just stop and her reply start, was startling. And she said, you mean I really don't have to do what I want to do? There's been a lot of conscience ignoring. And there is some wise counsel if we're playing around with sin. And it's simple. It's, it's stop it. <laughs> Quit doing that. How often we read that in the Bible. I need to put that off and I need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and what obedience looks like. The empty offerings of this world and the futile longings of the flesh leave us empty and with a troubled, defiled conscience. So not only does, does our conscience accuse us, and by the way, I'm reminded of Ogden Nash who once wrote, the only way to have happiness on this terrestrial ball is to have a clear conscience or none at all. And we come to have a clear conscience only through Jesus Christ. The things that trouble us, all of us have a past. Don't look spiritual. You have a past. All of us do, which puts us all in one pool of why we need a Savior. Not only does our conscience accuse us, but our enemy accuses us. We have an enemy, you know. Amen. Revelation twelve ten speaks of Satan as the accuser of the brethren. He's an accuser. He's a liar. He's a murderer. He's a deceiver. He's an angel of light. He should be resisted and to stand firm against his strategies. Satan is referred to in Revelation twelve ten as the accuser of our brethren. Who's he accusing? Or who, where is he bringing his accusation? Before, before God. And maybe even through temptations in your life, he accuses them night and day before God, the text says. Job is accused by Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? Satan had said, yeah, many times over, but I can't get to him. You've got to hedge around him. 
And God, for a reason known only to his counsel, left a breach in the hedge and Satan came in and Job lost all of his riches and he lost all of his children. And this accusation, Satan answered the Lord and says, does Job fear God for no reason? Take all this stuff and he will curse you to, his, to your face. In chapter 2 of Job, Satan answered the Lord and said, okay, you've taken all this stuff skin for skin. You, you harm his flesh and, and he will curse you. But Job did not curse the Lord. He said the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But Satan's bringing accusations in that text. The psalmist said, malicious witnesses rise up and they ask me of things that I do not know. In Zechariah 3, he showed Joshua the high priest standing before the angel, not Joshua of Moses' day, but Joshua in the post-exilic time of Israel who served as the high priest, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem and rebukes you. The Lord accusing the high priest before God. So we have an enemy who's an accuser of the brethren, and maybe you're stricken by that awareness and you feel the guilt of your sins. Let's be honest, guilt, guilt is not to be fleed. Guilt can be very useful in your life and in mine if it drives us to God's merciful, merciful means of forgiveness in Christ Jesus. If it leads us to our own spiritual bankruptcy, that's a good thing. If it wrecks our life and we become unable to function because of self-imposed strictures of guilt, that's not good. But that's at the heart of the gospel. That he bore our guilt in his body on the tree so that we would not have to bear it. And then there's our status before God. Those who have believed in Jesus Christ have been declared righteous by the living God and whoever Christ claims as his own will be glorified. This is at the heart of our security of salvation. What you will hear preached in this teaching is that there is an eternal security for the believer, for those who persevere in faith. Our salvation is not on again, off again. Our salvation beginning in the heart of God before the foundation of the world will know its full fruition and, and future glory. God will never reject one he has chosen through Christ. He will never say, you're no longer mine, and I no longer call you my own. Nor will he ever accept an accusation from anyone else that would lead us to lose our salvation. That's how strong it is. We are forever secure in the everlasting arms of God. So there's plenty of condemning power within us. There's plenty of condemning power and accusations from our enemy, but it's God who justifies. Ultimately, what matters in your life and in mine is who's declaring me innocent? It's God who justifies, the text says. It's God who pardons. It's God who reconciles. It is God who forgives. It is God who restores. It is the God who declares you righteous. Righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. 
Thomas Watson, we just finished reading a book, uh, as the pastoral staff did, from the Puritan Thomas Watson. He says, the pardoned soul is out of the gunshot of hell. Satan may accuse, but Christ will bring relief. The pardoned soul may go to God with boldness and prayer. Guilt clips the wings of prayer so that it cannot fly to the throne of grace, but forgiveness breeds confidence. And I pray that the guilt would, would have its wings clipped in your, in your life that you might enter into the presence of God through Jesus Christ and bring about a sense of confidence in your walk and standing with God. I thought about this appearing before God, this courtroom scene, and through the years I've kind of shared this fictitious scenario. We know that in real time, a sinner who turns from their sins and believes in Jesus Christ, they are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. But just think of Jesus being our advocate. Think of him being our advocate. And picture with me a courtroom scene, and I'll use myself, uh, standing before the judge of the universe. I'm a pastor. I'm a card-carrying member of the clergy for whatever that's worth. Not much at the throne. And so, you know, in cultural ideas, you know, he'll probably make it. And I'll hear a voice that no one would ever forget. Call me by name and say, you're, you're guilty of stealing. No, not me. And one by one, he would identify every instance in my life where I've stolen something, from a pencil to things more valuable. You're guilty of not honoring your father and mother. Oh, no, I love my parents. And one by one, he would list all the instances where I did not honor them, I did not obey them. You're an idolater. No, not me. And one by one, he would mention every idol I've ever had in this idol factory of my heart. And then he would go through every commandment. And when we look at how Jesus defined murder and adultery, not just being the act of, but in a heart of misplaced sinful desires, I would be guilty as charged. You're a liar. Oh, no, I've never lied. That's a lie. Look at how you've coveted. And on and on and on it goes. So being a card-carrying member of the clergy isn't really helping me out, right? You see, I need an advocate. I, I need an attorney to plead my case. And that is Jesus Christ, the righteous one who on that occasion in this fictitious story would say, Your Honor, I propose to pay this guilty man's penalty with my life and with my blood. Who are you? I am Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And the judge of the universe would say, "Um, You're guilty and condemned, but because of his advocacy on your behalf, you are forgiven and restored. And so it is, this well-meant offer of the gospel on this day is true even for, even for you, that if you would repent of your sins and call upon the Lord, you will have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. 
Your sins will be dealt with in a way that upholds God's, God's holiness and justice so that his mercy might extend to you and all of your sorrows and sins. Let's go to the third question. Who can condemn us? And here it describes, in verse 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The same forces that accuse us and condemn us who are ever-present nuisances and tormentors in our life, Christ absorbed that condemnation. And man, at this point, I'm just thinking, this is just too good to be true. Indeed, it's the best news. Moral failure, no condemnation. Divorce, no condemnation. Parental mistakes, any parents here with parental mistakes lingering in your life, no condemnation. That's not a pass. We acknowledge our failures. We confess our sins. But we know God's grace to press on in His mercy. Breaches of integrity in your life, no condemnation. We learn in this passage that the eternal judge of all, the one who will, we will all stand before uh, and give an account of our life, He is for us because of the work of Jesus Christ. That's the point here. But you must believe something. Faith has become a useless word in our culture. It could mean 100 things to 100 different people. Our faith has content, and here it is in verse 34. Christ is the one who died. More than that, he rose from the dead, and he's at the right hand of God. He's the one interceding for me. He's the one I must believe in. He's the one I must follow. And when that's the case, I will never be condemned Praise his holy name. Nothing can thwart his purposes. Now think of this. We've already read in verse 27, this chapter, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And here we're reading in verse 34, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, he intercedes for us as well. What is that communicating to us, believer? It can't get any better. It can't get any more secure than to be faithful, faithfully placed in his hands by faith. How much more support and assurance do we need? We, we sing that, that old hymn, the soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. Amen. That soul that while hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Who or what can separate us from the love of God? Look at 35. Verse 35, what, who can separate us from the love of Christ? And then he mentioned, this is a gory scene. This is a bloody scene. This is a heart-rending scene. In verse 35, shall tribulation? That's, that's pressure that comes from this world. It's painful if you would live for Christ. Shall tribulation separate us from his love? Shall distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Would you take in what he's identifying here? That's a bloody scene. But even, even still, no matter how bloody it gets or painful it gets, that can't separate us from the love of Christ. 
And then he goes on in verse 38, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, and that refers to spiritual powers, height or depth, or anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, run to the Savior, church. Run to Christ. Cling to Him and live by faith, walking every day in obedience to Him. Nothing could sever a Christian's relationship with his Savior. Nothing. And then I'll close with one final question. Who can defeat us? Look at 36 and 37. He quotes Psalm 44 here. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. That doesn't sound like victory. But the idea here is being given over to God's purposes. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. Look at 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors, super conquerors, mega conquerors through him who loves us. We cannot be defeated because ultimately our destiny is to be with our God. And we need to look at, uh, at our Savior as we look at the sufferings of our life. We need to look to Jesus Christ more than ever and remember that he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief that he always did that which pleased the Father, that his sacrifice on the cross extended to us forgiveness and right standing with God, that he's a living Savior as he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and he's coming back again. This is our hope in a world that is not safe and not secure. We can be secure and safe in God's arms. Which leads, secondly, to safety and security in a world of gore. I'm just amazed at the circumstances he's identified here, that nothing can keep you. Nothing can separate you, believer, from the love of Jesus Christ. And may this equip you in your mind and heart to worship the Lord this morning, that in Jesus Christ it is well. It is well with your soul. What have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms. I have blessed peace with my Lord so near. Leaning on the everlasting arms. Safe and secure from all alarms. May that give rest to your soul. No matter what you're facing now. No matter what you'll face in the future. God is faithful. So how do I respond to this message? Written primarily to believers, but if you've come among this assembly this morning and God's touched your heart and your need for salvation, turn to this gracious God. Believer, turn to this gracious God. Unbeliever, turn to him. Recognize your need for his forgiveness. Recognize your need for a new life, a new start, a new nature, a new heart, a new beginning. Ask him for the gracious help of the Holy Spirit. Submit yourself entirely to Jesus and surrender your life to him. And then get up and walk in obedience all the days of your life. That would be, I think, a good way to respond to that passage. Lord, I'm yours. I need you.